Would you please remain standing now as I read this morning's scripture from Mark chapter 3. But the teachers of the religious law who had arrived in Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons, and that's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. And similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying, he's possessed by an evil spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed. There's programming down the hall for them and to the rest of you. Thank you so much for being here today to worship with us at our nine o'clock service. We are glad that you are here. We are tracking the life of Jesus as told by the gospel writer Mark. And we come to a point where in chapter three, Jesus has begun his ministry. He begins to go out and preach. And in tandem with his preaching, he begins to do miracles of healing for people. He makes sick people well. He casts out demons of possessed people. He cures leprosy. He makes paralyzed people walk. And as you can imagine, word spreads rather quickly about Jesus, and he becomes quite popular. Uh, A part of the textual ground in this section uh, says that great crowds of people followed him, and they came from Galilee, which is his home turf. There's a map here, and the little star is Galilee. Uh, That was where Jesus hung out the most. Uh, But these crowds came not just from Galilee, but from Judea and Jerusalem and Edomea. That's way south here. And they also came from North Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Jerusalem is down here by the Red Sea. Tyre and Sidon are way up there. They're about 100 miles apart. And Jesus is kind of somewhere in the middle there. And in a day with no phone, no lights, no motor cars, not a single luxury, everybody knows of Jesus, right? Thank you for those of you who were clued into that. Appreciate that. Jesus was attracting people from 100 miles in every direction in this day where there's, there's no cell phone, like the, there's no newspaper. How do they know? Also, Judea and Jerusalem are Jewish provinces down to the south. Tyre and Sidon up to the north are Gentile provinces. In Idumea, uh, to the south of the Dead Sea and in Galilee, you have multi-ethnic, multi-racial populations. And so Jesus' popularity cuts across all of those dividing lines. It didn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter what language you spoke. It didn't matter what skin color you had. It didn't matter who you called king. You wanted to see Jesus. And so we are probably at the very height of Jesus' popularity. He is the hottest ticket 
in town. The crowds, in fact, are so big that Mark writes that he had to be worry about literally being crushed by the crowds because people would press in. They would want to touch him because they knew he had healing power. But that's all they really knew about Jesus. There's so much more to this man than just healing. Healing's just the introduction. Healing is just a sign pointing to something that's way more massive. And so this section deals with who is Jesus. We know he can heal, but why is he healing? Who is this man? And that's what Mark will answer for us here. He'll point to three different groups of people who will all look at Jesus and they will give him a label that they think fits. Now, sometimes we learn who somebody is by learning who they are not. And that's kind of Mark's tactic here. And the, the three groups will label Jesus who they think he is, but only one of these groups will be right. And so today, let's look at the scribes, let's look at Jesus' own family, and let's look at the 12. And I'm going to spend the majority of the time on the scribes, the very first one. We'll just brush the other two, so don't get nervous, okay? <laughs> Go to verse 22. Here's what we just read. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He cast out demons and he called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And so scribes come from Jerusalem to weigh in on who they think Jesus is. Scribes in Scripture are usually teamed up with Pharisees, and they usually team up together to attack Jesus, but not here. Here, the scribes are by themselves. They come on their own, and they come down from Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't make much sense to us. I just showed you a map, and Jerusalem is south, and Jesus was north, and it says they go down. But you need to understand that they didn't use up or down based on north or south. They used up and down based on elevation. And so Jerusalem sits at a sea level that's about 2,400 feet above sea level, give or take. And Capernaum, where Jesus is, sits at about 680 feet above sea level. So they literally went down. We would say they went up by going down, okay? That's what it means. And they get to Jesus. And they were saying. It means that they were continually or repeatedly saying this thing. This wasn't a one-time thing. They were hounding Jesus every chance they got, following him all around and always saying the same thing. What did they say? They said this, Jesus is possessed. Jesus works for the prince of demons. Jesus is Beelzebul. Now, uh, Beelzebul is worth our time because there's a little play on words here that's really cool. Uh, if you go back to the Old Testament and to a town 
named Ekron. There's uh, Baal worship going on, the god Baal, the, I- the idol Baal. Uh, and the word ba- Beelzebub means exalted Baal or uh, Baal the prince is another thing that it could mean. And the word Zebub is only one letter removed from Zebel. And Zebel means dung, upon which there are a lot of flies, if you've ever experienced that kind of thing. And so the Hebrew people would see people worshiping Beelzebub, and they would mockingly twist the word around to Beelzebul, which means Lord of nothing but a bunch of flies on a dung heap, okay? And that mocking idea was that Beelzebub was, was nothing, right, compared to the real God. And so by Jesus' time, this word had become synonymous with Satan himself, Beelzebul. So the charge by the scribes, is that Jesus is a demon. Do you want to know who really Jesus is? We've figured it out. Jesus is a demon working for Satan himself. That's how he's doing all of these wonderful healings. Now, don't uh, note that they don't question Jesus' power to do these healings, right? Because the, they can't. The evidence is all around them. What they question is the source of Jesus' power. They say, it's got to be Satan. By the great demon, Satan, Jesus is casting out all the little demons in people. Now, they should have been smart enough to realize the fallacy in their own logic. The scribes were very highly trained legal specialists in the law of God. They knew how to put an argument together and this argument that they, they charged Jesus with is taken apart by him fairly easily. Uh, it's worth saying that in a lot of these kind of encounters, Jesus rarely defends himself, but this is an exceptional accusation. It's, it's an accusation that mangles up the truth of who Jesus really is. And so he defends himself and he challenges the accusation with a thought experiment. He gives them a question. That's a very Jesus thing to do, to answer a charge with a question. And he says this, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, guys, let's play this out to its logical conclusion, what you're charging here. And let me give you two hypothetical examples. Mark calls them parables. He uses a kingdom and a household. First, he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Now, those are, those are true words. And you and I have a kingdom, most of us today, that we are a part of. Uh, this particular red kingdom will kick off at 5.30, right? Yeah. And we are for that kingdom. Now, Let's think about what an atrocious thing it would be if the team of that Red Kingdom came out on the sidelines and half of that Red Kingdom team decided to put on blue of all colors and and compete with the other team. How long would our Red Kingdom stand together? 
not very long, right? We would be done. They fight against each other, and they're done. A civil war kills the kingdom. That's Jesus' point. Then, just like that, here's the example number two. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, the first uh, example of a kingdom divided, we might have to imagine that, but this second example, we've seen this. Everyone in this room has seen this play out. Two people get married, and a couple of kids come along, and life happens, and they begin to turn on each other. They fight against each other. They abandon each other, and what do they end up doing? They end up blowing up a family. A family cannot stand together as the unit it was intended to be if two people leading it are against each other. And we've all seen that firsthand. And so to the scribes, Jesus says, guys, your charge against me just doesn't work. Just like the kingdom and the family that cannot stand if they're divided and against each other. If Satan starts fighting against himself, then logically he's divided. Logically he cannot continue to stand. He's doomed. He's done. He's over. And Jesus goes on. He says, now your explanation doesn't work. Let me give you my explanation that absolutely does work. And here's what has really happened. He says, in fact, no one can enter the strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. That's a parable. Who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan himself. And where is Satan's house? Well, Satan's house is here on the earth that he dominates. And who are Satan's possessions? Satan's possessions are you and me, who he holds prisoner through disease and sin and sometimes even demons. But Jesus said, someone stronger than the strong man has come into his house. <laughs> what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am that stronger person that has come into Jesus, uh, Satan's house with more power than Satan himself. I have come into his house, I have tied him up, and I have freed his prisoners from their bondage. That's what has actually happened. The scribes don't have much to say. In their silence, Jesus goes on and he gives an amazing promise and a powerful warning. First, the promise. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whoever blasphemies and whatever blasphemies they utter. Here's the warning. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never see forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an evil spirit. Now, before we get to what everybody wants to talk about in this text, the few huge flashing lights. You see, you see them, right? You, you know what it is. I need to point out to you the first line and the promise that God gives us, that Jesus gives us. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. I did some research all means all. 
We could say it's the full extent or quality of something. It is the full catalog of sin. What is sin? Sin is missing the mark of God's character and law, whether through thought or feeling or speech or action. It is not living into the life that God has for us. We miss the mark. That's sin. And Jesus says, all sin will be forgiven. Do not read this text and talk about what you really want to talk about in this text without first entirely understanding this promise. Uh, There's a little saying on Twitter, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, and then they, they tweet their tweet. Let me use that today. I don't know who needs to hear this, but in Jesus, all sins will be forgiven, full stop. We should say it again. In Jesus, all sins, all of your sins, the full catalog of your sins will be forgiven. I love the way that Erwin Lutzer puts it. He says, there's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Why don't you say that with me, okay? There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Let's do it one more time. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Now, with that idea pressed down and hammered into your mind, what does Jesus mean here when he says there is a sin that won't be forgiven? He calls it an eternal sin that can never be forgiven. He calls it the blasphemy against God's Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy just means abusive speech. And the idea is to have abusive speech and to mock God and to deny the power and the majesty of God himself. Now, there's probably not any one of us in this room who hasn't read this text and questioned, well, what does that mean? If there's an unforgivable eternal sin, I mean, what is it? Because, man, do I want to avoid that? I mean, I read that all sin will be forgiven, but not this one. And so it would help if I know what I'm trying to avoid. And so let's clear that up today, okay? And just like Mark tells us who Jesus is by telling us who he isn't, let's begin with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and let's talk about what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not, okay? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not cursing the Holy Spirit or God himself. Plenty of Old Testament saints do that. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not taking God's name in vain, though we certainly want to avoid that. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not adultery. It's not divorce. It's not homosexuality. It's not murder. It's not idolatry. It's not genocide. It's not even suicide. It's not greed or lust or pride or any of the seven deadly sins we covered in our series in the fall. All sin 
will be forgiven the children of man. It's none of those, but all of those things can lead to it. Now, what is it? One of the things we need to understand when we interpret Scripture is that the first commandment of interpreting Scripture is this. Context is king. Say it with me. Context is king. Don't ever divorce the words of Jesus from the setting in which he says them. So what's the context here? Here we have very learned, very religious leaders who are witness to the God-like miracles that Jesus is doing, the healings and the, the exorcisms. And instead of looking at Jesus and calling Jesus God for the God-like things that, and grace that he's passing out to people, instead of that, they look at Jesus, who is God himself, and they call him Satan. That's the context. Religious leaders attribute Jesus' great healings not to God, but to Satan. And that, that helps us. And so what is going on here is that you have people who should be able to recognize God when they see him. They actually fail to see God as God, even when he's right in front of them. And not only do they fail to see God as God, but then they use abusive speech and they mock and they deny the power and the majesty of God by calling God Satan. See, they had already made up their minds about Jesus when they came down to him. We learned earlier in Mark's writing that they had already begun to plot to take Jesus' life. And so... The scribes don't see him as the remedy for sin, so their sin remains. There it is. Let me put it this way. Let's say that you need a life-saving operation. And it's a special operation, and you find only one doctor on the entire planet that can do this operation. And so you track that doctor down, and you meet with that doctor and the operation is set and you're going to have this operation and you're going to be saved. But then, then, after it's set, you go away and you begin, your wheels start turning, you begin to frame up in your mind that this doctor, maybe he doesn't have your best interest at heart. Maybe this doctor is actually a sadistic murderer. And it's not true, but you think it's true. You absolutely come to the point where you believe he's a murderer. And so everything that happens gets interpreted by your mind and your brain as a confirmation that this doctor is not going to save you. He's only going to murder you. And so, so this, we, you come to this point. As long as that's the case, that you see the doctor as a killer, you will never consent to the operation that you need. You'll never turn to that doctor to be saved. And so do you see? When you start labeling God and his truth as evil, and you do it for long enough, then you will come to a point where even if he's standing right in front of you, even if God in the flesh, Jesus, is right in front of him, you won't recognize him as the savior that he is. And so you will never turn to him. That's the sin that can't ever be forgiven because you won't ever ask for it to be forgiven. 
Religious leaders that should have been leading people to Jesus are instead plotting to take his life. I want you to note in the text that Jesus never charges them with this unforgivable sin. He just warns them that they're going down the path that leads there. They are standing opposed to the only one who can save them. And when you stand opposed to the only remedy for your sin, unwilling to accept that remedy, then your sin remains. Once you start to label the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of Satan, there's really no going back at that point. There's no remedy for rejecting the remedy. So in this, there's actually hope for you and me. Whenever you come to this text in all the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit talk, you need to understand this. That if the unforgivable sin is coming to a place where even if Jesus were standing in front of me in the flesh with the cure for my sin, but I don't see him as the savior he is because I've convinced myself he's a monster, if that's the unforgivable sin, then listen, just by asking the question, what is this sin, you can be well assured that you haven't committed it. Because you're still looking for the remedy that Jesus wants to give you. You're fine. When you stop looking for the remedy, that's when the remedy won't work. Barclay says this, and I think he puts it really well. He says, as long as people see loveliness in Christ, as long as they hate sin, even if they cannot leave it, even if they cannot leave it, even if they are in the mud and the mire, they can still be forgiven. But if people, by repeated refusals of God's guidance, have lost the ability to recognize goodness when they see it, if they've got their moral values inverted until evil to them is good and good to them is evil, then even when they are confronted by Jesus, they are conscious of no sin and they cannot repent and therefore they can never be forgiven. That is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And so the scribes look at Jesus and they say, he has a demon. Now the second and third groups are super important, but we just can't get to them fully today, but just a brush, okay? Verse 20 says, Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again and so that they could not even eat. And then when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, they were saying, he's out of his mind. And so his family hears about what he's doing. They go out to him, and his family says, Jesus is mad. This is another section, starting with verse 31, that tells us Jesus' own family comes to the conclusion that he's out of his mind. Jesus is a madman. We have to go get him. Now, that's an understandable place to be if you're Jesus' family. To them, Jesus had given up security. I mean, he had a stable job at home. He's given up safety because there's already a plot to take his life. He's given up society because he's doing questionable things from a very traditional Jewish point of view. But Jesus doesn't care what people or society thinks. When they get there, this is what Jesus says, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God 
is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is making a new family that includes you, includes me. And his words there probably didn't help their perception. Jesus' family calls him mad. There's a third group of people, and it's the 12. They'll, come, they'll become the 12 apostles, and they say, Jesus, he's not a demon. No, we don't believe that. And he's not mad. We know that. He's not insane. But they say this, Jesus is worth following. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. These guys that are listed in this text, there are 12 of them, Jesus calls them by name, and they say, yes, Jesus is a man that is worth following. Now, here's why I wanted to show you those three groups, even though we just brushed on the last two. Because all of the New Testament responses to Jesus are right here in Mark chapter 3. Jesus is either a liar. In other words, the scribes say, he's a demon and he's trying to trick us all. Or, Jesus is a lunatic, that's what his family claimed, he's out of his mind. Or, he is Lord of everything. And that's what the twelve saw. That he is the creator who names us, who gives us life. Those are the only three responses that Jesus ever gets in the New Testament. And so we have to think about those. What, what about this claim that he's a liar? That goes against all of our common sense and logic and experience. If Jesus is a liar, then how does he live his life out from beginning to end with the purest and noblest character in all of history, in perfect truth? in perfect reality? How does he conceive and carry out a plan to save the world back to God and then sacrifice his own life for it if he's just lying? That's nonsensical. What about if he's just a lunatic? What if he's mad? Well, then we have to face the historical difficulty of explaining his exemplary life. The incongruity between his moral teaching and his infinite narcissism, if he's just a madman, has never been reconciled and it will never be. And the only option left is that Jesus was God himself. Jesus is Lord. C.S. Lewis has some words that are often quoted. He says, what I want to prevent is the silly thing that sometimes we often say that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing, C.S. Lewis says, that we mustn't say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us because he did not intend to. Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. And in the light of his claims in the full revelation of Scripture, naming, naming him anything else but Lord is simply crazy. The supremely sane life is one that sees Jesus as Lord of all and follows him. And so that's your invitation today. Would you step into today, maybe for the first time, spiritual sanity? Jesus was not a madman, neither was he an evil liar. He was and is Lord and God and Savior. And if you believe that, maybe you need to say that today for the very first time. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Say it with me. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you've never said that today, would you come? Would you come and you would, would you say that in belief? Would you say that in repentance? Would you say that in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of sin that is offered to you in Jesus? Every sin will be forgiven. And in Jesus, every sinner will have a, a name and a place in heaven. Do you want that today? Father, gracious God, it is this world that we live in that lies to us, that calls Jesus mad, and it's insane. We thank you that when you stepped into history in the person of Jesus Christ, that sanity and reason and truth and life stepped into history as well. When we follow you, we do the most rational thing that we can do. Would you forgive us of all of our sin? Would you strengthen our commitment to follow Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray these things. And everybody said, amen.